Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by The Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia, and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the necessary shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Bulwark contributor and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. My Normal partner in this enterprise, Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the Arlie Burke Chair of Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies is on the road. So I'm soloing today, but I'm very happy to bring onto Shield of the Republic a very special guest, a former colleague in government uh, of over 30 years standing and a frequent co-author uh, on matters of national defense strategy and particularly nuclear strategy, uh, Franklin Miller. Uh, Franklin uh, Miller is a Phi Beta Kappa graduate of Williams College and a longtime public servant. Uh, he's been a political military affairs officer in the Department of State. He has been a civil servant in the Department of Defense and for many years, uh, the head of the Office of uh, Strategic uh, Policy in the Office of the Secretary of Defense and Senior Director for Defense at the National Security Council in Bush 43 and a national treasure, even if he is a New York football Giants fan. Frank Miller, welcome to Shield of the Republic. <laughs> Eric, it is it is a great pleasure to 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 be with you. And boy, I'm not sure this is the season to talk about the Giants. <laughs> well, as a as a red, uh, sorry, Commanders fan, um, you know, I, I don't have much to write home about either. Frank, it is a great time to be talking because there is a lot going on uh, in the area of uh, nuclear strategy and questions of nuclear uh, escalation, potential escalation that have been hanging over us uh, for the entirety of this war in Ukraine. I wanted to start by taking you back to, to one of your you know, important elements of public service, which is when you served on the Schlesinger Commission back in the last couple of years of the Bush 43 administration, when you had already left government. And the commission had been appointed um, by uh, then Secretary Gates to look into the uh, very embarrassing episode in which uh, a U.S. Air Force crew accidentally loaded a fully armed nuclear weapon on a U.S. plane in Minot uh, Air Force at Minot Air Force Base and then shipped it off to Barksdale. Air Force Base in Louisiana, where there were no facilities actually to receive it. And I think it's fair to say that one of the conclusions that your commission reached was that these issues of nuclear strategy had, first of all, suffered from neglect inside um, the military services, uh, not just the Air Force, but uh, the other services as well, uh, since the end of the Cold War. And that we were really losing our kind of nuclear deterrence skills, that is to say, the expertise, both in the hardware uh, of the development and manufacture and maintenance of nuclear weapons, but also the software, you know, the understanding of nuclear strategy, of escalation dynamics, of, of nuclear deterrence. 
that report was roughly 15 years ago. What is your assessment of kind of where we stand today? Those, those, those were not great days, um, and, and, and you're absolutely right. And I think that, that to some degree, we still suffer from the, the problems which were uncovered as a result of the Schlesinger panel. The, the Air Force, all the services, had, had basically dropped the nuclear mission from their uh, uh, focus. Uh, after the end of the Cold War, only the Navy Strategic Submarine Force and the Air Force ICBM Force maintained a, a, a strong focus on, on nuclear operations. Um, and so the bomber community and, and, the, and, and the fighter community in the Air Force uh, would rather not have thought about it, would rather the mission had, had gone away. And, and that was one of the core issues that the Schlesinger panel looked at. I mean, sadly, five years later, under then Secretary Hagel, um, a similar study was done and found that the Air Force had not improved again. But I think since then, the Air Force leadership has paid more attention to, to nuclear operations. It's not yet where, where I would want it to be at the, at the uh, peak of, of, of nuclear readiness during the Cold War. But I think we are moving into an era, as you and I have discussed on many occasions, that that's, that that's coming. Um, intellectually, uh, I don't think we, we have recovered from the end of the Cold War. I'm afraid that the, that the community is dominated by two different uh, groups of people. One is a group of people who, who believe that arms control is the answer to all problems. Um, and arms control can, can deal with difficult situations. It can mitigate the threat. But when you're dealing with uh, a serial arms control agreement violator like Vladimir Putin, um, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to talk about arms control. The Chinese aren't interested in arms control. The more we tell them that they ought to be, the less interested they are uh, because they play that game very well. So on the one side, there's the arms control uh, group. On the other side, and I hate to sound like the, the old bureaucrat that, that, that I am and that you are, um, there are a bunch of people who've never had to deal with the responsibilities of government who talk very blithely about, well, we can use a nuclear weapon or we can use a bunch of nuclear weapons. And, and you know, the whole point of deterrence is, is, is to prevent major regression, not, not to use these things and come up with, with easy pet solutions that say, oh, well, we can just use a couple. So uh, I'm afraid that, that, um, we, we need almost a, a renaissance in, in talking about deterrence policy as it came up out of the Cold War and what does it mean and how do we apply it to a world that is increasingly dangerous with, with two nuclear peers, Russia and China, and a KJU, uh, a North Korea, that increasingly has the capability to hit the United States with nuclear weapons. Yeah, I worry that people are, you know, uh, really, you know, sort of blithely unaware about just how dangerous and damaging these weapons, you know, would be if used. You know, it, it struck me not long ago that uh, a former colleague of ours in government, you know, Andrew Marshall, was, I think, the last person I knew who had at, actually witnessed an atmospheric nuclear test. You know, we, we stopped atmospheric nuclear testing in the early 1960s. And so the number of people who really have that kind of visceral sense of these weapons uh, are are kind of dying off. And people who spent a lot of their 
graduate school lives or undergraduate lives studying about this subject, like you and me, are sadly aging out uh, of you know the the business. And there are you know some signs of a revival of interest in the subject. There's been a lot of good. I would say, uh, you know, history that's been written of uh, some of the early um, years of the uh, Cold War and about nuclear deterrence. And uh, more and more Cold War history is is being written that gets at these subjects. Uh, but I think my sense is we still lack, you know, sort of a core of people who are really you know, trained in nuclear deterrence skills, I would call them, uh, of the kind that were, you know, more common when you and I were in government in the 80s and 90s before the end of the Cold War. I think that's exactly right. And and I think I think part of it has been replaced by uh, an altruism, a misplaced altruism uh, that suggests that that once the United States takes a step, uh, all other nuclear powers are going to take the same step. That's a bit of cultural arrogance, to be perfectly blunt. Uh, so first, the notion, not to knock the administration, but to knock the administration, that we're going to reduce the role of nuclear weapons. Well, all fine for the United States to say that. The evidence points to the fact that, that the Russians, the Chinese, and the North Koreans have increased the role of nuclear weapons. Um, Therefore, the pronouncements by the Biden administration that it's going to reduce the role of nuclear weapons don't make the world safer at all. Um, and similarly, we, we, we're subject from time to time to the notion that, well, we're just going to work with the Russians until they understand that fill in the blank, something's going to make the world safer. Well, first of all, the Russians do what they do or the Chinese do what they do because they have a plan. They have a, they have a, a thought out strategy and our telling them that MERVED ICBMs are a bad thing is not going to get them to abandon MERVED ICBMs. In fact, they are they are uh, very much involved and invested in MERVED ICBMs. And telling them that transparency is important doesn't stop them from cheating and doing things um, that that are in direct violation of agreements that they've signed. But but we we need to get past that naivete and this altruism and deal with the world as it actually is. And, and I think that's exactly to your point. Deterrence in the Cold War was about a nasty war, a nasty world that had to be um, that had to be moderated. Yeah, I mean the the MIRVED ICBMs, of course, those are intercontinental ballistic missiles with multiple independently uh, retargetable uh, warheads uh, or reentry vehicles uh, that we have argued we, the United States, have argued are destabilizing because they could potentially lead one side or the other to believe that they had the capability of executing a a first strike that would disable such a large uh, part of the adversary's nuclear forces that they would really have very little ability to retaliate or inflict damage on uh, in return. Um, and we've argued these are destabilizing, so we have demerved. We have gone to single warhead missiles, which I think we could all agree are more stabilizing. But you know, our adversaries seem to be moving in a different direction, yeah. re- regardless of of what we do. You know, all of this started to come back. Of course, uh, I don't want to say into vogue, but into focus for people with the start of the uh, Ukraine war in February of. of 
2022. Although people who had been paying attention, like you and me, know that back in 2014, Vladimir Putin already had said uh, at the time of his seizure of Crimea that when that invasion w- was going on the, of the so-called little green men, the you know, non-standard uniformed Russian forces that went into Crimea and took it over from Ukraine, that he was contemplating the use of nuclear weapons if the United States had tried to intervene or intercede in that in that effort. So the whole uh, notion of nuclear sable rattling by Russia really antedates the outbreak of the Ukraine war, but it really came into focus for a lot of people, I think, during uh, that war. And I, my observation, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this. My observation is that uh, it has waxed and waned, the, the sort of saber rattling, that much of it appears to be for effect. That is to say, the Russians noted early on that President Biden and his staff were uh, saying on and off the record that they were going to resist, you know, help Ukraine resist Russian aggression, but they didn't want to help so much that uh, this war escalated into World War III. Uh, and very aware of the danger of nuclear escalation, which is not an unreasonable thing to be worried about. I mean, I think everybody should take it into account. The question is, how much credit should you give these threats? It's striking to me that many of these threats, when Putin makes them anyway, are very general and broad about you know terrible consequences, things that nobody's ever seen before, etc. But when he's been asked as he was again recently at his Valdai club, very specifically, you know, are you prepared to use nuclear weapons? He says, there's no use case here. There's really no purpose in using nuclear weapons in in Ukraine. And that really is of a piece with a very long uh, Soviet tradition during the Cold War of making these very big, broad threats. But in the, in, you know, when it comes to actuality in the Cuban Missile Crisis in the 1973 Yom Kippur War in the face of, you know, real potential nuclear use backing backing off. Most recently, this uh, occurred, as I said, at Valdai, this club, discussion club that is uh, held in a location in Russia where he has one of his many homes, where an old acquaintance of ours, Sergei Karaganov, uh, was Uh, making the argument to Putin publicly that he has made in writing multiple times over the last couple of years that Russia should calculatedly seek to lower the threshold for nuclear use and um, possibly even use nuclear weapons just to, you know, show that uh, the NATO alliance and the United States that Russia is really deadly serious about this and shouldn't be trifled with. And Putin, of course, poo-pooed that. You know, my reading of this is good cop, bad cop, uh, and that it's all aimed at manipulating the perceptions of the Biden administration and causing them to exercise more caution on things like attackums. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Well, I think you're I think I think you're exactly right. I mean, the the thing about about Putin, who still appears to have a grasp on, on, on reality to to a large degree, not a perfect degree, is that he is well aware that a move that he takes 
could put the very existence of his country in peril. Um, and, and that our nuclear capabilities and, and NATO's nuclear capabilities still hold at risk the things that he and his leadership value most, their own existence, the, the, the FSB that keeps them in power, their, their military forces, their war supporting industry. And, and, and despite the, the brash talk of, of academics who don't hold the responsibility of power, uh, nobody knows that a nuclear war could be limited. So, so the first use, and you know, we Americans, we talk about, oh, he might use a nuclear weapon. Well, he crossed the threshold. I think he'd use multiple nuclear weapons, but that, that's, that's an aside. Starting, starting a nuclear war could end up in the destruction of, of not only Mother Russia, but, but a large part of the planet. And I think he knows that. So his intent is to scare us, to get us to not do things we ought to be doing, um, and, and to let his surrogates do that while maintaining a tight leash himself on, on the nuclear trigger. To some small degree, or no, to some reasonable degree, it's worked. You and I have written in the past about the fact that, you know, if we had only supplied um, uh, the, the, the uh, long-range strike systems earlier, that would have made a difference. If we had got the armor there earlier, it would have made a difference. If the F-16s were there now, uh, Ukrainian air superiority, might might make a difference but in the, the period of time from february of, of 22 to now um, because the ukrainians didn't have those capabilities the russians have built these these immensely strong lines of defense which makes the ukrainian task uh, breaking through so much harder so to some degree it's worked but at the end of the day un unless we believe that that putin or xi or kju are are totally um, lunatic and out of touch with 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 the realities of the world this is going to be a lot of posturing um, and in all three cases i think they are very savvy people the chinese nuclear uh blackmail is is more subtle than that of of putin and his cronies or kju but it's it's there nonetheless and i think it's our job the job of our administration to 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 be sober about this and to point out that, you know, this, this would be a, an extraordinarily foolish thing for the Russians to do with, with peril that, that um, is inherent for the survival of the, of the Russian state. And, and there are great reasons why they wouldn't do it. This is where it seems to me uh, the connection to what we were talking about earlier comes in, the lack of knowledge and awareness among senior policymakers of the traditional literature on nuclear deterrence and escalation dynamics comes into place. I mean, uh, Thomas Schelling, uh, you know, the Nobel laureate uh, who wrote uh, a great deal about nuclear strategy, but was one of the first people to apply game theory to the study of nuclear strategy, was one of the original people at RAND who had to wrestle with these issues when they were, you know, really fresh and new, argued famously that, uh, you know, nuclear deterrence was a competition in in risk taking, and that, that a, a lot of this was about manipulation of risk, and what he called um, being able to impress upon your adversary the risk that leaves something to chance, the the notion that, you know, if you go down this road 
as you were saying, there be monsters. I mean, that, that this is potentially the end of your society. It's potentially the end of life on the planet, uh, you know, if you actually pursue this course of action. So I, I, I really think there's an absolute connection here between the lack of study, the lack of knowledge about this uh, whole issue set that has existed since the end of the Cold War and some of the behavior we've seen on the part of the Biden administration and the ability of the uh, Russian Federation and particularly Putin to, to manipulate us. I, you know, I want to talk about a, an article, a colleague of ours, uh, former colleague, Greg Weaver, um, who uh, for many years was worked at uh, Stratcom, uh, has written about restoring NATO's you know, nuclear deterrence. I mean, he, he has basically written about what you and I have just been talking about, all of these nuclear threats, uh, the potential uh, for use, um, which he may take, I think, a little more seriously than you or I. But, you know, we can't completely rule out that uh, that Putin might might do this. What what is your uh, sense of you know uh, what he uh, you know was writing about and arguing for in terms of steps to restore a bit of NATO's nuclear deterrence and and what steps would you take if you were still in go- or advocate if you were still in government to do that? I think it's, it's a great question, Eric. I, I, so so you know during the immediate years of the post Cold War, uh, NATO. NATO decided that there was no threat from the East and, and that Russia wasn't a threat and that Putin wasn't a threat. And I think that all started to change in 2008 when he, when he invaded Georgia. In fact, 2007, when he made that speech, uh, I, I think it was also at uh, Valdai, but, but Bob Gates was there as SecDef. Uh, that was uh, Munich. I think that was a Munich security. Munich, you're right. Of course it was. It was. Um, and and I mean, we, we even had the situation where, the then German foreign minister in the in the in the twenty tens said, "Well, we're very happy for the Americans to have a a nuclear umbrella over us as long as we don't have to bear any risk." Well, that's not what NATO's about. I mean, the foundation of NATO is risk sharing and burden sharing, and and no member of Congress or of the U.S. Senate is going to support a nuclear umbrella if risk and burden sharing isn't broad and 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 complete throughout the alliance. So. I think Putin, uh, as he has in many ways, um, has raised NATO's awareness about, or the, the awareness of NATO governments, I better put, and, and the population, the importance of nuclear deterrence, the importance of preventing uh, aggression, um, the importance of enlarging the alliance. Thank you, Finland, and soon Sweden. Uh, so, so Putin has, has reminded people about the threat. The, the notion of, of NATO's nuclear burden sharing, by which the, 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 the political science phrase means that, that everybody has to have a part in this deterrent, has been for decades since the end of the Cold War embodied in aircraft squadrons, uh, allied aircraft squadrons in what the press tells us are five countries, um, having a role in delivering U.S. nuclear weapons should NATO decide it needs to use nuclear weapons, and the President of the United States agrees. Um, there is some notion, I think Greg touched on it, about, about bringing uh, Poland into that mix. I, I believe that, that creating a new nuclear air base in Poland 
uh, is the wrong answer. I mean, first of all, it moves closer to the to the Russian border, which is is in fact going to get the Russians, you know, fairly concerned. Second, it puts the weapons um, very close to to uh, Russian short range missiles. Uh, third, you know, the U.S. Air Force, which never never really has has enjoyed this mission, has embraced this mission as as truly important, um, would have to sink. Uh, you know, a large amount of money building a, a, a nuclear storage facility there. That's not going to happen. Um, but I think there are better ways to do this. And I think that, and, and you and I should probably think about writing a piece on this. Uh, NATO is in the process of replacing its its Cold War era F-16s and, and tornadoes with F-35s. That'll be a very modern deterrent. It's in the process, almost completed, I think, of replacing um, the, the the gravity bombs that were in uh, NATO um, in NATO Europe, uh, which dated from the '60s and had vacuum tubes, for goodness' sake, um, with with more with more modern weapons. So NATO will have in its in its air forces, you know, a fairly credible capability, military capability. I think that that as as some of the nations. Um, transition to F-35s, there's no reason why their pilots, their best pilots, can't be assigned to other NATO units. I mean, they're all going to be speaking English. This is part of the the, the, the core competency of, of NATO pilots. And so you could take a Polish pilot or you could take, um, uh, say, a Norwegian pilot um, and, and assign them to a, a, a squadron in, in the Netherlands or in Germany. Um, and by making known the fact that pilots from those countries were involved, you would in fact broaden the participation and the burden sharing, but you do so in a way which was militarily sensible rather than trying to stand up a whole new unit um, very close to the Russian border. And I think it would be less politically damaging uh, with, with the Russians, but it would still send a very strong signal. Yeah, I mean, there's a historical parallel here, of course, which is, as you were saying, if you put these weapons forward, they become a, a target for preemption by uh, by Russian short-range and intermediate-range missiles, which was precisely the position we put ourselves in uh, in the um, late, really early 1960s with the um, Jupiter missiles that we put into Italy and, and Turkey in particular, which became the subject of the bargain between Kennedy and Khrushchev in, in uh, 1962 during the missile crisis. I mean, interestingly, Albert Wolstetter, who is another one of the sort of, uh, you know, grand old men of nuclear strategy, also at Rand at the same time that, you know, Schelling and Brody and Herman Kahn was there, uh, argued in the late 1950s against those deployments, precisely for the reasons that you you, you just articulated, saying this is they're just going to be targets, you know, for preemption, and it's actually kind of escalatory. We shouldn't do this. So you know, there is a kind of uh, history. It's, this is why it's important to know the history. <laughs> so um, you know of of these earlier earlier efforts. I I think it's important for our listeners to know that. Uh, when you were talking earlier about the effort that Europeans were making after the end of the Cold War to say there is no Russian threat and no Russian 
enemy. There was a proposal by the Germans, in fact, to walk out of these kind of arrangements, which, you know, luckily, um, you know, didn't go forward. But a big part of the reason it didn't go forward was that you and Corey Shockey, who's been a, uh, on Shield of the Republic and a friend of our show, um, and George Robertson, the Lord Robertson, the former NATO Secretary General, uh, wrote a very important essay um, for the Center for European Reform, arguing against this, which actually helped change, I think, the 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 argument inside NATO and and preserved, you know, the dual capable mission uh, for for NATO and the shared uh, shared burdens and and risks of of the nuclear mission. Um, and I very much agree. I think uh, getting Polish pilots uh, into the mission, as opposed to having nuclear weapons in Poland, is the is the right way to send the signal to share the burdens and share the risks. That's something my colleague at CSBA, Evan Montgomery, actually advocated some some years ago in a in a piece that we did at CSBA on extended deterrence. So I, I very much uh, agree with that. You mentioned Frank earlier that Vladimir Putin was a serial violator of. Uh, arms control agreements. I, I have, uh, as you do, scars uh, to you know to bear, bear that out. I mean, I was uh, in government when I think you had already wisely left, but um, uh, when the Russians decided that they were going to suspend their participation in the CFE agreement, the Conventional Forces in Europe agreement which was a very interesting reading of the treaty, because if you actually read the treaty, there's absolutely no provision for suspension. There's a, prov- there's a provision for termination. Um, but the, the then Russian deputy foreign minister, later ambassador to the United States, Sergei Kislyak, explained to me that, well, surely if the negotiators had negotiated a termination clause, they you know, would be, you know, clearly had in mind, you know, some lesser measure like suspension. So therefore it was okay. I, I did tell him that that was very, you know, very ingenious legal theory. And I wish we had thought of it when we were wrestling with the question of the ABM treaty back in t- 2001 and 2002. But, you know, there's been, uh, you know, there's been a series of, there was this uh, in the late um, Bush administration, there was the suspension of CFE and an enormous effort on the part of the Bush administration to try and scratch whatever itch there was. Because one could make an argument. Um, you know, Secretary Gates said to me, look, I have some sympathy for Putin's position. And this treaty was negotiated when there, there were two rival alliances. Now all of his former allies are in our alliance. So, you know, does does this make sense? Which was fair point. But, you know, we went through all these gyrations, all these non-papers to try and figure out what can we do to make this more palatable to the Russians who never responded ever to any of the proposals other than to say not enough, you know, and, you know, I got the, I got the impression, which I think is correct, that they didn't have a grievance that could be assuaged. They just wanted to be aggrieved. And, and so we then had, of course, the violations of the INF treaty, uh, which led ultimately to the Trump administration uh, doing the right thing and getting out of the treaty. I mean, the INF treaty had banned the United States and uh, Soviet Union and then Russia as successor state from uh, having any 
ballistic missiles in the range of 500 to 5,500 kilometers, the intermediate range. Um, but we were the only two countries in the world barred from, uh, from those kinds of weapons. China's developed thousands of weapons in that range. Iran has developed thousands of weapons in that range. Um, the Russians were violating the treaty, so there was only one country that was actually abiding by a limitation of missiles, which was the United States. We ended up getting out of that treaty. Um, and now the Russians have suspended, again, not ended, but suspended their participation in New START, uh, which kind of leaves us a little bit blind to whether or not they're actually adhering to the numerical limits. Um, and there's now talk about uh, them undoing their ratification of the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. Now, that's a treaty that the United States signed, but the United States Senate has never ratified, although since 1991, we have, in essence, abided by the terms of the treaty. What do you make of 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 all of this, and uh, should anybody be concerned about it or not? Well, I think I think that what you point to is a pattern. Um, Russians don't like being constrained by treaties. Uh, they're like us being constrained by treaties, but they don't like to be constrained by treaties themselves. And the Russians play fast and loose with the truth. Um, we don't because the free press keeps any U.S. administration pretty much in, in line. Uh, I remember when you and I were Cubs working on, on, on the original deployment of the INF. And every couple of months, as the number of Russian intermediate missiles grew higher and higher, Brezhnev would say, there is an approximate balance of nuclear forces in Europe. And I remember working on a chart that was in one of the Defense Department annual reports to Congress that showed as the as the Russian numbers kept going up and there were no NATO numbers yet, Brezhnev kept saying, well, there's still a balance here. Well, that was complete falsehood, but nobody really called him on it until we put it in the defense, um, in the defense report. Uh, when the Bush administration decided to abrogate the ABM treaty to get out of the treaty as opposed to cheating on it, but to formally say, we're going to get out. Everybody said, oh my goodness, uh, uh, the U.S. is is, is is going to build a, a shield of, of anti-ballistic missiles. That didn't happen, but at the time of the Bush administration decision, and even today, the Russians have more ABM systems than the United States does. But you can't really find that in the literature. You certainly don't find it in the press. People say, well, you know, the United States got out of the treaty. Well, the Russians had already within the treaty built up a large force of ABMs. And by the way, their ABM missiles have nuclear warheads. Yes, sir. Unlike, unlike our interceptors, which just have a dummy kinetic warhead with no explosives in it at all. Right. And so we come to the test ban treaty. You know, somewhere in the last three weeks, a story came out that we wanted to give the Russians more access to our, you know, nuclear test facility, so-called, in Nevada to assuage any concerns they have that we might do nuclear testing. Well, first of all, it would take a huge amount of money and several years before we were ready to do nuclear testing. We are not ready to do nuclear testing. Uh, second, the Russians are testing. The Russians are testing right now. The State Department has said publicly, based on obviously intelligence, that the Russians are testing at very, very low levels, levels which are 
are useful to their weapons designers, but which are deliberately designed to be below our threshold to detect them, although we did catch them in, in this. Um, and so the Russians are testing. And the same State Department public reports based on intelligence say, we think the Chinese may be testing too. So this kind of hypocrisy goes along, and yet people say, well, you know, I saw the report that said the United States may be testing or getting ready to test a nuclear weapon, which is total nonsense. Again, I mean, we need to have people who are more informed about the truth as opposed to blaming us, you know, the Gene Kirkpatrick school, Gene Kirkpatrick, the late Gene Kirkpatrick ambassador to the UN under President Reagan, who, who famously said, there's a group of critics out there in the West that blames America first. I mean, look at what happened in the late 1980s when, when um, Yeltsin finally admitted that yes, for decades, the Soviet Union had been violating the Biological Weapons Treaty. We weren't. The Russians, the Soviets were. And that, that doubt still exists today. Uh, the Soviets and, and the, the Russians signed the Chemical uh, Weapons Treaty. Not, no side is supposed to have chemical weapons. But they tried to kill Skripal uh, in, in the UK using chemical weapons. They tried to use chemical weapons against other political uh, opponents of the of the regime tried to kill navalny with it exactly so again i mean it's time for a generation of journalists to start talking about what's really going on in the world as opposed to blaming america first i'm sorry it's a bit of a rant on my part no, I, really I, I couldn't agree more what impact would a russian duma de-ratification of the CTBT half. I mean, is that just rattling our cage, more kind of effort to manipulate us about, oh my God, they're going to start nuclear testing again? Um, it's it's kind of hard to understand what the point is, really. Well, it's to rattle our cage. It's, 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 to, it's to scare us again and to get people again running around in the street saying, oh my God, this is, this is, this is a, uh, a preliminary to, to them getting ready to use a nuclear weapon in Ukraine. So we need to back off our support of the Kyiv government. Uh, as I said, they're already testing. They're testing at a level which gives their weapons designers whatever they need to develop new nuclear weapons. They don't need to go to a larger test. And they don't even have a facility to do a larger test. I mean, the, the, the facility at Novaya Zemlya is, is designed to do small-scale underground tests at this point. So the military value... Of, of such tests is is pretty much zero. But this is all designed to affect Western public opinion and Western governments, you know, and sadly, we keep falling into that trap. Yeah, I mean, another thing that they tested recently was the Burovesnik, which is this yeah. nuclear-powered cruise missile, which was a, a weapon a concept, a nuclear weapons concept that the United States considered at one time and abandoned because... Uh, we concluded that it was too dangerous to have a nuclear reactor flying around that might explode, um, you know, with the attendant, you know, uh, radiological mess that it would uh, create, which may have happened in northern Russia during one of the earlier tests of the Burovesnik. Russians have not come completely clean about what happened with that test. I think it was, correct me if I'm wrong, but I was think it was former Undersecretary of state Chris Ford 
who described this uh, as a flying mobile Chernobyl. I think that's right. I think that's right. Yeah. But again, I mean, it's not, I mean, I suppose there might be some advantages because arguably a nuclear powered cruise missile could fly, you know, around the world for a long time, you know, before it came to earth. But, you know, all of these weapons, again, seem to me more, you know, there's a Russian expression, Pugatsa Dieti, you know, scare the children. It's more, yeah. it's more to, to scare us than it is for any particular military purpose. Frank, I wanted to wrap up our conversation with something you talked about earlier that you and I testified about together in front of the Senate Armed Services Committee a year ago, which was, uh, and we had we wrote a joint statement, which we'll um, uh, we'll put in the program notes for this show for our listeners, uh, and then I want want you to just preview for us before we uh, wrap up completely the work you've been doing on the congressionally mandated Strategic Posture Commission. Um, whose report will have just come out uh, when listeners are listening to this podcast. So first on the uh, what some people have called the three-body problem, something you adverted to, we are in an absolutely unprecedented situation for the United States in which we have to deter not one nuclear peer and one very much lesser nuclear power as the PRC was for most of the Cold War with a very small, limited nuclear arsenal. The uh, China uh, military power reports of the Department of Defense and statements by senior intelligence officials on the record in the Congress have made it clear that uh, China is building up to parity with us and with the Russians, the levels that have been set uh, by the New START Treaty of 1,550 warheads on, on each side. So we now have to deter two nuclear peers at the same time. You and I have suggested that that, that may need to result in some changes to our nuclear posture, uh, some uploading of weapons. As we talked about earlier, we downloaded Minuteman ICBMs to one warhead rather than three. We've got to follow on to the Minuteman three coming on. We have to think about how, how we structure that for the future. Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, gave a speech to the Arms Control Association in June in which he said, uh, yes, this is a novel situation, but the United States doesn't have to match um, the uh, Russians and Chinese weapon for weapon in order to deter both. He left unsaid exactly what he thinks the U.S. nuclear posture should be. Recently, uh, three authors, Charles Glazer, uh, James Acton and Stephen Fetter had an article in Foreign Affairs in which they started with Jake Sullivan's speech in, a, in essence as a point of departure and said, Jake Sullivan's exactly right. We don't need to do anything to increase our nuclear weapons st- uh, uh, force uh, structure or posture uh, to deter both Russia and China. We got plenty to do it right now. But we have to change our nuclear strategy because our current nuclear strategy, which is to target Russian nuclear forces, command and control, war enabling uh, industry, et cetera, commonly called counterforce strategy, requires too many weapons to hit all the targets. And instead, we ought to just go after 
uh, you know, big urban industrial areas, uh, population centers, which is commonly called a counter value strategy. And then we have all the weapons we need. Walk our, our listeners through what's wrong with that argument. I think you and I both agree that it is a deeply flawed argument. It is a deeply flawed argument. Let me go to one point that you made about Jake Sullivan, because I think people, and, and certainly the, that trio, um, have misinterpreted what, what Sullivan said. Uh, I believe, and speaking for myself, this is not the commission, uh, I believe that we need enough nuclear weapons to hold at risk what enemy potential enemy leaders value. I'll come back to that in a minute. But, but a simple weapons count that if the Russians have X and the Chinese have Y, we need to have X plus Y, that is foolish. And I think, I think that's what Sullivan was saying. I mean, we need to have what we need for deterrence. Uh, but simple, you know, uh, uh, just, just piling weapons on weapons and going back to that old phrase from the, the, the 50s about making the rubble bounce. I, I don't think that that's a, a meaningful uh, uh, policy. And again, it goes to your, your early point that people don't understand deterrence anymore. And, and that is absolutely, totally, uh, starkly uh, the fact with those three authors who, who suggest holding at, at risk uh, the population of, of Russia and China. Now, now the, those people don't affect their leadership's decisions. Um, the leadership, in fact, ships... Uh, Millions of them off to prison camps uh, uh, where they're tortured and, and, and it's subject to 1984, like uh, the novel, Orwellian uh, surveillance. Uh, Mao used to say that what's, 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 what's a million people? That's, that's nothing. Uh, deterrence is all about getting into the minds of potential enemy leaders and saying to them, if you do this, if you go to war against us, the world is not going to be as you want it. And you're going to lose everything that you value. And, and the Congressional Commission of which you spoke makes that point, that the way to deter effectively is to hold at risk what potential enemy leaders value. And what is that? It's, it's themselves. It's their support structure, the FSB, KGB. It's the People's Armed Militia that keeps them in power and terrorizes their own people so that these guys can, can run their countries. It's, it's the key elements of their military forces, and it's their war-sustaining industry. And if you say to them, if you go to war against the United States, if you use nuclear weapons, those things are going to be gone. You will not dominate the post-Cold War world, whatever the post-Cold War, I mean, the post-war world, whatever the world is. And, and so to threaten populations is both immoral and, and against the law on, on, on armed conflict, but, but it's totally meaningless because it misses the mark. And to have people say this is to repeat this nonsensical, well, let's just hold cities at risk the way we used to. We, we did that from 47 to 49 only because those were the targets that we could hold at risk. In 1949, we began targeting those assets that the Stalin uh, felt were most important. And, and there's essentially a continuum from then. McNamara, uh, uh, confused everybody deliberately with this concept of counterforce and countervalue, but McNamara's uh, war plans also focused on what the Soviet leadership valued them, themselves, their military, the, 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 the KGB controls. And that was largely under the influence of William Kaufman, who had come in yes. from the Rand Corporation, 
based on a bunch of studies he and Andy Marshall and others had done about right. the most effective deterrent would be to go after the forces, not the public, not the population. Right. So it's, it is a deeply flawed argument. And, and these guys are smart enough and have been around long enough to know that it is a deeply flawed argument. And they're simply trying to pluck it out of the sky to make the case for fewer weapons. The number of weapons that they would like to have back in New Start days or 2010 was a world where Russia wasn't a threat and China wasn't in a discussion. And you fast forward today where you look at what the Biden administration is saying about Russia and China as threats, and you know that's wrong. And they know that's wrong if they are intellectually honest. And I, I leave that point for others to decide. Tell us about the commission. Um, you know, this is a successor to uh, a commission that was uh, set up by the Congress back in 2009, as I recall, 2009-10, which was headed by the late uh, uh, Jim Schlesinger and uh, Bill Perry, two former secretaries of defense that looked at our strategic posture. Uh, yours is the successor commission. Uh, give us a preview of the findings. Well, the findings will, will roll out publicly on on uh, Thursday, October 12th. And uh, it was a diverse set of people, which I think makes the fact that, that the commission report is is a consensus report all, all the stronger. Um, and, and the commission recognizes that the world has become dramatically more dangerous over the past uh, period of time since the, the previous 2008-2009 uh, commission, and that as a government, the United States government needs to make decisions urgently to prepare ourselves and our allies to be able to deter effectively into, uh, into the future. And so, as, as you were, were alluding to, um, and as you and I have testified in the past, we need to be able to deter Russia and China simultaneously. Um, we need to have enough weapons to do that, but we don't need to have weapons to be able to make the, the rubble bounce. We need to look at the modernization program, which has been the strategic modernization program that's been proceeding since the Obama years, because that is a necessary modernization of our nuclear forces, which were allowed to age and atrophy uh, over the past several decades. But that program is not sufficient. In the out years, in the out years, we're going to need more Columbia-class submarines. We're going to need more uh, B-21 bombers. We're going to need more cruise missiles um, to hang on those on, on those bombers. For the for the period of time when there's a transition, as we move from the old force to the new, we are likely going to have to take warheads out of storage and and put those on our submarine-launched ballistic missiles and on our ICBMs. So. There's a clear need to get ready to enhance our forces in, in, the, in, in the near term. Um, we're going to need uh, a capability in the Pacific theater to deter uh, China from using low-yield tactical nuclear weapons, of which they, as you, as you indicated, have, have large numbers. Um, and we don't currently have a good capability in theater today. We are going to have to think for the first time about some degree of, of missile defense against small Chinese and Russian attacks. And, and that's, that's, that's something new, but it's something very important. 
uh, we need to we need to put more attention against our long range conventional uh, strike capabilities. Our Navy can't get into um, areas in the South China Sea because of Chinese defenses. Those defenses have to be destroyed if the Navy has to move in. We have systems that are getting ready to deploy, but neither the Army nor the Navy is moving anywhere quickly enough. Um, we're going to need a whole lot more air tankers to be able to cover the Pacific and Europe at, at the same time. And the report says that we need to pay attention to these things and also to looking at the, the capacity we have, or more appropriately, we don't have, um, to build nuclear weapons and to maintain our nuclear stockpile. Because many of those facilities, Eric, date, date to the 1950s. I mean, this is these are, you know, the movie Oppenheimer. These are from the Oppenheimer period uh, because we decided we didn't need them at the point you made at the very beginning, that nuclear wasn't very important to us. So I, I think the commission report as a consensus report is a powerful document that, that 12 individuals from private life who range from, you know, conservatives to very liberal came out and agreed on on 81 different recommendations, 131 findings and 81 recommendations to improve our posture, to be able to deter and to prevent war in the future. Frank, that's a, a great uh, summary. I look forward to reading that report. Um, I think it's a very important one. And I want to thank you for being a guest on Shield of the Republic. These issues are not going away. So I reserve the right to recall you to to service uh, in a future episode, but thanks so much for, for being. I would look forward to that. Uh, we clearly need to write a piece on, on NATO and I wish you uh, all the, the, the best as, as you work on the national defense panel, which is, which is terribly important stuff. And I hope that what we have done in the strategic posture commission helps inform your work. I'm sure it will. I know it will. Thanks so much. My pleasure.